Thank you, Nathan. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Matt. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you were blinded even to ask if it would be a good decision? You ask your parents over and over again, I really want this, I really want this. And they're like, no, son, daughter, you're not ready for it. You keep on asking because you want it so badly and finally your parents give you what you wanted. See, this reminds me of an episode I saw on YouTube the other day. Basically like a short film about an elementary school boy who wanted to be an adult so bad. Why? Because he thought he could do what he wanted. No bedtime, no dietary restrictions. He wouldn't, you know, no school. He can go to work and get paid. And he thought that as a fifth grader, that's something that was good for him. So it turns out that one day, after asking his mom so much, he got his wish. And for one day, he heard his mom allowed him to become an adult. Starting that night, he was like, no curfew, sorry, no bedtime. He wants to sleep late. Dinner, ice cream, for sure. Not to know that the next morning, his mom woke him up extra early than he usually would because, you know, as an adult, you got to get early to help out for the house and breakfast and so forth. And he barely could because he went to sleep super late, didn't have any, any time to sleep. His, his stomach hurt because of the ice cream. Two pints. He had to make his own breakfast, and he had to leave early. So he went with his mom to work, and his mom was a nurse. So he dealt with the patients, his mom's patients, and to one point, one of them vomited on him. Tired, he got home and thought, well, finally, the day's work, I'm going to get my money, and I'm just going to chill. His mom's like, no, no, you got to cook dinner, and then you got to clean the dishes that were used, and then you got to wash your uniform for tomorrow, because that's what I do, and if you're an adult, you got to do that. And he did it, right? And then mom paid him the $100 that she promised. But adults also have to pay bills, right? Charge him for the three meals that he had that day. Charge him rent for the roof per night, right? You know? Charge him rent to use his supplies in the house, such as soap, toothpaste, covers, etc., because he didn't pay for it. She did. Money to use electricity, money to use the water. So, as you can imagine, by the end of the day, the son learned his lesson and was grateful that he was still a boy and learned that he'd rather put up with chores and a bedtime than to deal with adult responsibilities. You see, maybe if he would ask his mom, Hey, mom, I really want to be an adult because I see your life and I see that you're just problem-free and I want that. You know, you can do whatever you want, when you want. And his mom would have probably told him, See, son, that's not the reality. And hopefully he would have... Some sort of sense would have knocked into him, right? See, today we're going to study some verses that have been taken way out of context regarding prayer. Many have taken the words of Jesus and perverted them to justify and satisfy their own selfish desires. To pray for what I want, and if I believe it hard enough, and I speak it, I can claim it, and God can do it. Knowing that our attitude for prayer should be Lord, we ask you this, but let now my will be done for yours. See, God promises that if you pray believing and with no doubt that he will answer prayers. But most importantly, we will learn today that our prayers to God should not solely be our desires, but for his will to be done. Let's read today's passage in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. 
Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And once again, the fig tree, and at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all these things you ask, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So for the past two lessons, we've been going over the events that are taking on Passion Week. We see that the first event is Jesus entering Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, right? And this happens on Monday. We learn that Jesus is king regardless of what we or the people of Israel expected him to be. They were expecting a political savior, one that would save them from Roman oppression, but he came to deliver them from a greater enemy than the Romans. He came to deliver them from sin. Therefore, they needed a spiritual savior, a spiritual king. The second event that we discussed happened the following day. Brandon taught us about Jesus' righteous anger and what was happening and what was happening in God's temple that he didn't like. You know, you were my, my, my father's temple, a house, a den of thieves, and he was flipping chairs and flipping tables and driving them out of the temple. Right? And we learned that the Pharisees, the little kids in the, in, the, in the courtyards were singing, Hosanna to the Son of David, the Savior. And the Pharisees were like, you're not going to say anything to them? You know you're not the Savior. You know what they're saying. They're implying of the Messiah. You know you're not. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, no, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of David. Today we will start to look at the events that took place on Wednesday. According to the Gospel accounts, which starts off with a fig tree. Today's outline consists of three parts to the fig tree scene. Three parts to the fig tree scene. The first part we're going to look at is the withering, verse 18 to 19. The second part we're going to look at is the question in verse 20. And the last part we're going to look at is the response in verses 21 through 22. Today's theme, main idea that I want you to have in your mind as we read and study God's word is the following. Pray with genuine faith, believing that God is all-powerful to act. Pray with genuine faith, believing that God is all-powerful to act. Do you believe that? Oh yeah, you should. Let's start with the first part of this fig tree scene, the withering. Verse 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Now in the morning refers to, as I mentioned earlier, today we start talking about the events that occurred on Wednesday of Passover or Passion Week. According to the Gospels, Monday was the triumphal entry, Tuesday was the cleansing of the temple, and Wednesday begins with the fig tree as he walked to Jerusalem. When he was returning to the city, we see that the day before in verse 17, after cleansing the temple and healing, he went back to Bethany. Verse 17 says, and he left them and went out to the city of to Bethany, and he spent the night there, and I'm pretty sure he was staying in Lazarus' house with his sisters, 
because we know that a couple of days earlier he resurrected Lazarus uh, in Bethany as well. So now it is morning and he's walking towards Jerusalem for another day of ministry. And this, these three words right here, we can spend months talking about it, but we only have a couple of minutes left. He became hungry. He became hungry. This is crucial. It is important. And we cannot gloss over it and read over it without studying what this means. Our God-man Savior became hungry in the morning as he prepared for another day of ministry. So for Christ to be hungry, what does that mean? What does that imply? Yes. He's human. He is human. Good job. Not only is human, he's 100% human. But the reality doesn't stop there. The Bible teaches the doctrine called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is a doctrine that teaches that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. With no division, with no separation, he is man, he is God. Fully divine, fully human. See, Jesus Christ, being the eternal God, added to his divinity, humanity. He voluntarily restricted not to use his divinity here on earth, only at the will of his Father. And we can read this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We can read up there. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. He's talking about unity and considering the other more important than yourself. But then there's this doxology of great theology here. Who, although he existed in the form of God, this is Jesus, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he was equal with God the Father, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You might say, why is this important? The fact that Jesus was human and divine. Well, number one, Christ needed to be fully human to be the perfect mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for, the, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not only did he have to be 100% man, he also had to be 100% God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. You see, only God can bear the eternal wrath of God. Only God can bear all the punishment of all the sin of all the world. Only he can. Only God can. So why is this important? Well, this is important because if you deny the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, you deny God. You deny the God of the Bible. Because the Bible clearly teaches that Christ was 100% man and 100% God. Sects like the Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, they believe this. That Jesus is not fully God. That he is not God. And we know that that's not true. We know that God is God and that's why this is important. And also we have a lot of famous teachers that are false that to kind of justify their theology, 
they will tell you that Jesus wasn't 100% God and 100% man at the same time. That he was only human. Therefore, in his humanity, he performed miracles. Therefore, we can perform miracles because we're human too. And that's not the truth. So I hope you were blessed with that very mini description of the hypostatic union. Again, we did spend months here, but let's move on to verse 19. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. I have a picture of a fig tree. That's what a fig tree looks like, and that's what figs look like, depending on the type and the month. Trivia question. When is the first time fig fig trees appear in the Bible? Text. Why? Other than creation. Other than when he created the vegetation. Leaders, you, you can, you can, yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, the fig leaves were where, you know, they were naked before the Lord and they made clothes, okay? Jesus was hungry and probably loved to eat figs, and he spotted one on the way. When he got there, the tree was alive because it had leaves, but it had no fruit. Mark mentions that it wasn't fig season yet. In 11.13, seeing it at a distance, a fig tree in a leaf, fig, a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. A commentator writes, Mark tells us that though it was not the season for figs, the tree was in leaf. Fig leaves appear about the same time as the fruit or a little after. Thus, the leaves normally point to every prospect of fruit, even if not fully ripe. So you might ask yourself, Jesus knew this. Why would he approach a fruitless tree? Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus like to make a lot of points? And does he use a lot of nature to do it? to symbolize, to help understand. In His grace, He does. And that's what, this is what He's doing here. He purposely chooses a barren tree to make a point. A commentator wrote that when the tree gave leaves, it usually was followed with fruit. So to go to a tree that He knew might not have figs, but was alive and green, was to make a point on the current state of Israel and was another way to teach His disciples about the fruitless Jews who were alive but were spiritually dead. He wanted to make a point. He wanted to go to a tree that was alive, but bearing no fruit. And we're going to see why he does this in a second. So what does he do? Let's continue reading. And he said to it, after he goes to it and there's no fruit, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. No longer shall there be any fruit from you. Jesus basically kills a tree. Let me ask you a question. Other than providing oxygen and maybe some dwelling places for animals, what purpose does a fruit-bearing tree have that does not bear fruit? What purpose does it have? None. It has no purpose. Okay? Yes. Jesus wanted to show his disciples 
that bearing fruit was evidence of salvation. He wanted to show them that false religiosity, self-righteousness, outward holy appearances, without a transformed heart, meant nothing to God. And the end result for these trees was a chopping block for fire. So, what happens when Jesus speaks this to the fig tree? Well, if you continue reading, and at once, the fig tree withered. The fig tree withered. In Matthew's account, the tree withered at once. In Mark's account, it was the next day that the disciples saw the tree withered. So you might be asking, oh, what's up with this? You know, you're, this is confusing, it's contradicting. Again, no, it's not. Remember, the fact that the gospel writers are same principle, same essence, different details, makes it even more reliable. See, Matthew, he just placed two events in one day. The entry to, the, to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and the cleansing of the temple. He doesn't di- distinguish that there's another day in between. Mark does. He does. So, MacArthur states, For the fig tree to wither overnight was to do so virtually at once. Right? Regardless what the at once means, at once could have been there in the moment, or it could have been that Jesus said that, the tree, Matthew's writing, the tree withered in future tense, or it took time where they couldn't visibly see it, and the next day they saw the, the final fruit of this tree was dead. So Jesus was using this moment to explain to his disciples that a life without producing fruit will lead to death. We just saw people claiming in the triumphal entry, the Messiah, right? They were like, who is this? The son of David, Hosanna, son of David. And then when the crowd kind of like died down and they were asking, so what's the commotion about? Who is this guy? The people were like, oh, he's a prophet from Nazareth. They went from savior to prophet. We saw that. And we saw the children, right? They saw the children praising him as Messiah and the Pharisees telling Jesus to tell him to stop because you know you're not. They were a people of much ritual and self-righteousness, but of empty fruit. They said the right things outwardly, but inside their heart, they were dead, spiritually dead. Let me ask you a question. What does the Bible have to say about trees that don't produce fruit? I'd say a lot, actually. Luke 3, 9 says, Indeed, the ash is ready, laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What about John 15, 2? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. It's a good thing that if you're a believer in Christ, that you're bearing fruit, that you can produce more fruit. Matthew 7, 15, 19 is not up there, but I'll read it to you. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, as a believer in Christ, what good fruits are we supposed to bear? What a blessing that Pastor Wade went over a couple of them on Sunday. Galatians 5.22, 
The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We can't go one by one here, but just a quick question. Do, does your life, is your life characterized by these fruits? Do people know you because of these fruits? Do these fruits radiate from you? Are you the grocery section, the produce section at Walmart? Nice and shiny. Think about it. Works will never and can never save you from eternal death. Good works are important to God because guess what? They are a result of your regenerated heart. They are evidence of your salvation. And don't think by any means that you can produce any fruit without the power of the Spirit. And how do you get the power of the Spirit? By being regenerated by the Spirit, by calling out to God to save you from your wicked sin and to give you salvation. So, that was the first part, the withered tree. Now, let's go to the second part, the question. Verse 20. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? The Greek word used for amazed is astonished. Miracle amazement. Moments ago, we saw the humanity of Christ. He was hungry. Now, what, what are we seeing through this miracle? His what? His divinity. We're seeing his divinity. Right? A commentator writes, A diseased tree might take many weeks or months to die, and even one that had been salted either by accident would take several days to die. This one happened at once. They were witnessing yet another miracle of God. Now, do you ever think of after all the miracles that Jesus performs, they still ask questions like, how did this happen? How did, why? I mean, man, you've been with Jesus for three years and you've seen him do all these miracles and you're still asking, how did this happen? Well, he's God. <laughs> That's why. He's the Messiah. That's what you left to follow. Now, why were they astonished, though? That, that's an interesting question. They had literally just seen Lazarus rise up from the dead about six days earlier. That's why there was a commotion in Israel when he came in in triumphal entry. They saw Lazarus resurrect after four days being in the grave. But they were astonished at a tree dying in a day. Some commentators wrote that they might have been astonished because this was only of two miracles that Jesus performed that resulted in death. Anybody name the first miracle of Jesus that resulted in death? Brandon thought about it. Two word legion. Through the pigs and then the pigs ran off the cliff and into the ocean. And then this one, the second one is this one, where he tells them you will not bear any more fruit, tree dies. So, but the real question that they should have asked was not how this happened, because they had seen Jesus' power over creation multiple times, right? They saw him walk on water. They saw him calm the seas. 
They saw him in the natural multiply fish and bread. The real question they should have asked was, why did the Lord allow this? And what is he wanting to teach us? That's what they would have thought. Okay, the Lord just did this. By now, we should know our Messiah likes to teach us things as objects. Instead of saying, oh, how did this happen? Hey, Jesus, what are you trying to teach us here? Like we should come. Lord, what are you trying to teach us through your word as we read these rich truths? So let's see the response. And Jesus, in verse 21, the last part of this, of this, of, of this sermon, of this whole truth sermon, the response. And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So, before we talk about the richness of the scripture, I want you to talk, I want to talk about what this does not mean. Okay? What this is not teaching. This does not mean that God is your personal genie. Okay? It does not mean that you can pray for whatever you want, believing and with no doubt that God will automatically give it to you because of your great faith. Think about it. An underage person like yourself, maybe in middle school, wanting to pray for a car. Man, you want a car. Lord, provide the car. I want the car. I want that. The car of your dreams. Yeah. Could he give it to you? Yeah, he's powerful enough. Now, will he give it to you? I don't think so. I mean, like, you don't want people, middle schoolers, who don't know how to drive, driving around. I mean, it's a safety concern. It's a safety issue here. All right? Maybe some of you know how to drive. It's fine, but you know what I'm trying to say. This misinterpretation of Scripture comes from false doctrines called, one of them is called little God doctrine. The other one, it's kind of like all messed together, the word of faith movement. So what, is, what, is, what do these two false theologies teach? They basically teach that because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, we are in the same class as God, and since God spoke creation into existence, then we can speak anything we want into existence. It's where the movement, the name it and claim it comes from. Guys, this is not true. This is false teaching. It doesn't add up to Scripture. It's not consistent with Scripture. If you look at the context of the entire Scripture, it's false. Think about it. If God wanted you to live your best life now, or He wanted you only to have health, wealth, and prosperity, what would these teachers, these false teachers and false religions say about the following verses? Deuteronomy 32, 39. Guys, these are tough verses. So, this is God's sovereignty at display here. And you serve a sovereign God. Don't by once doubt. And what the world thinks of sovereignty is not what you should think of sovereignty. What the world thinks of fairness is not what you should think of fairness. We think of what God is, and He's fair, and He's just, and He's loving. And never will our philosophy go over God's Word. Amen? God's Word is first. And this is what God says about Himself. 39. See now that I am He, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. That's God. What do you mean? What do you mean? He gives and takes away life and he heals and makes sick? Yes, that's God. 
Exodus 4, 10 through 11. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in the time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. For I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If name it and claim it was real, I'm pretty sure all the apostles would have avoided persecution and would have avoided martyrdom. I'm pretty sure that Peter would have not died upside down on the cross and with his wife seeing that. I'm pretty sure the apostles wouldn't have done it. I'm pretty sure that, you know, the thorn in Paul's flesh, he probably would have named it and claimed it and healed himself with just that if that was the case. But it wasn't. We can't go against God's promises. He doesn't promise health, wealth, and prosperity. But you know what he does promise? Promises peace during our trials. Philippians 4, 7. He does do that, and we can cling to that. He's there walking alongside us as we go through these trials, as he prunes us to produce more fruit. That's how he does it. He does it to conform us to his image. So this is the God who we serve, who is completely in control. How dare we ever think our high view of ourselves that we can change God's mind or that God is here to serve us. And believe it or not, guys, there's a lot of churches that think this way. That God is here to serve them. And that's not the case. You can't pray away sickness or persecution or diabetes or eczema if the Lord has ordained it for you. You can obviously pray for a miraculous healing, believing with faith. But right after that sentence, you should say, let not my will be done, but yours. Because there's the, the other side of it. Because in their movement, if you don't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And it's like double depression. <laughs> you're depressed because you're sick and you're dying, and then you're more depressed because, oh, I don't have enough faith to be healed. You can have all the faith in the world. If God has not ordained that for you, it's not going to happen. Does it mean that we don't pray believing that God can heal? Oh, this week I was praying and the church was praying. We were all praying together for the health of one of our, uh, 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 one of our, one of our members. And we were praying for healing and we were praying that God would use medicine and whatever it takes to, and we were believing it. But I'm pretty sure that after those, we were all saying, but let your will, God, be done in my life. And thankfully, guess what? God's will aligned with ours and she's perfectly fine and she's recovering and she's okay. This is power of prayer. And I'm pretty sure we were, a lot of you here were praying with faith, believing that God can do it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I encourage you, please pray like that. That's the whole object of the, the, the purpose of this lesson. But always let your will be done, not mine. So what is the actual meaning of this text? Let's read it together. And Jesus answered and said to them, In this case we see that our patient Lord once more, answers their question with love, with kindness. He doesn't call him Satan in this one. He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. When Jesus says truly, it means that, listen up, I'm, I have something very important to say. The Greek word for faith here means trust. Strong confidence in and reliance upon something, someone or something, often with the object of trust understood. And the Greek word for doubt means to hesitate to pause or hold back in uncertainty or unwillingness. So he's saying, if you, truly I say to you, if you have faith, believing, trusting, and not doubting, 
you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. What mountain was he referring to? Probably the mountain of olives. He was right there. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you had the faith we just mentioned, with no doubt, not only can you do this small thing like wither a fig tree, but you can also do bigger things if God wills it. We see that moving mountains was a Jewish saying, colloquialism, and was used to exaggerate some points. Remember when we Jesus taught on having the faith the size of a mustard seed in Matthew 17, 20? It reads, and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. So what is Jesus saying? What Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that if you ask the Father believing that God can do it, and if he wills it, he is powerful enough to do so. Amen? You can have all the faith in the world, but if God has not willed it, it's not going to happen. God's will comes first. That is why this verse is so misunderstood all the time. People take this verse and say, if I claim it, I will receive it. But we know that if we, make, if we take the entirety of Scripture, we know that God is sovereign over all, and His will has been established from the beginning of time. And we have these beautiful words of God that says in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We have Proverbs 19.21, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. What about James 4, 13 to 15? Come now, you say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this Jesus was encouraging his disciples to pray with faith that can move mountains, believing that God is powerful to do so. But more importantly, he was telling them, pray that God does his will. That God does his will. Verse 22. So to reiterate what he just said, he repeats it. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. All things here is implying if he wills it. The will of the Father, and if you pray with faith, you will receive it. Guys, how great and merciful is our God that not only did He save us, but He offers to be our Father and wants us to pray to Him and pour our hearts out to Him. And not only that, He tells us if we pray believing with no doubt, and if it conforms to His will, we're even, God uses us even in answering other people's prayers. Praying for others, God uses us to move his hands. He doesn't have to, but he chose to, just like salvation. The gospel is not preached, no one's being saved. Once you open your mouth and preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit uses that, and that's what opens the eyes of unbelievers. We're a medium. God uses us as an instrument. Same thing for prayer. So now you might be asking, what is the connection between the withered fig tree and having mountain faith, mountain moving faith for prayer. In light of the context, Jesus showed his disciples and those around that God was not content with their worship in the temple as he overturned the tables and drove them out. And right after we, we read about this, now God is showing his disciples 
his discontentment on the way the people of Israel were self-righteously fruitless. Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Jesus is using this faith example to teach them what a true regenerated heart looks like and how a regenerated heart should pray to God. He's saying, don't be like unrepentant Israel. Rely on God to produce good fruit. And one way that this fruit is seen is through faith and moving moving mountain faith. Big faith. Exceeding faith. He's saying, don't be like them. They're dead. They're fruitless. Be different. Produce fruit. And the way that you can is praying with faith that you move mountains. Lastly, this is not inspired. Just looking at the context, I believe that it is not a coincidence that one of the things that he's also trying to teach his disciples is the fact that he basically said, look guys, see all, all those people that cheer you for me in the triumphal entry? The majority of them are not believers. The majority of them just want their own king. They're not looking for me. We saw in the temple, when I was healing the sick, what did the Pharisees do? They rebuked me. They told me to, be, to, to silence the children. You know what a dead-ass faith is. Think he was telling him the, his disciples the faith that was used here to wither this tree is the same faith that if you pray believing can save souls, can save lost Israel, can save that person that you think is unsavable. Faith that moves mountains can save even the worst of sinners. So how can we apply these awesome truths to our lives? I've listed a few applications. The first application, praise Christ that he's 100% God and 100% man. If he doesn't turn in, if he doesn't add humanity to his divinity, we're not here. We're not saved. There is no resurrection. There is no Christianity. Praise God that he took divini- the humanity to his divinity, and that he was the perfect human mediator to save you and me from eternal separation. Number two, evaluate your fruits. What characterizes your life? Remember, only a true believer in Christ has the power to live out the fruits of the Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you gives you the ability to do so by you reading, meditating the word in the Word, listening to sermons, listening to God's word preached. That's how you produce good fruits. Live out the truth that's in Scripture. Put off sin. Renew your mind. Put on righteousness. And please don't be confused either. I'm not trying to teach you that being a good person is going to get you into heaven. That is false. Another heresy. You can be the best person in the world, but if you're not perfect, you can count. The Bible says that even if you keep the entire law, yet stumble in one point, you have, made, made guilt, you have been made guilty of all. There is none righteous, not even one. One day, we're all going to die, and we're all going to face God's judgment 
And we all know what the verdict is. Guilty. But God in His grace sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who was God, and maintained His divinity and became man to live the perfect life you and me couldn't, to store up all that righteousness for us, so that when God sees us, guess who He sees? He sees Christ. He sees His righteousness, His perfect life, not ours. He died on the cross, resurrected on the third day, proving that he had power even over death, and he's at the right hand of God, reigning as king. And the Bible says that if you repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, that he rose from the dead, and you make him Lord of your life, you can have this salvation. Don't let tonight be another night where you say to yourself, eh, I'll do it next Sunday. I hope that, and I pray that Holy Spirit can be opening your eyes right now to your sin, so you can cry out to your Savior. Last three, actually. Number, number three, how is your prayer towards God? Do you pray believing? Do you pray with faith? Or do you pray just because it's a checklist? I pray today, I'm done. How do you go before the throne of God when you pray? Something that's helped me recently is close your eyes and picture God's throne. Picture His immensity, His, His greatness. He's the creator of the universe. Picture you going before the throne of God and just asking praising him. And go believing. Go believing. He, he says that we can call him Abba Father, which is an endearment term of Papa. He says we can do this. Christ did that for us. He gave us direct access to God. Let's take advantage of that. If Jesus, who was God, prayed all the time, who are we not to? We got to pray. And not only pray, but believing in your prayer and believing that God is powerful enough to change circumstances if He wills it. Amen? Last, be aware of preachers and false doctrines that can lead you away from the truth. Don't be critical to those who go to these churches. But like Pastor Dusty said the other day, be loving. Gently speak the truth if asked. And you know what? Pray that the Holy Spirit that they believe in can actually do the work that it's supposed to. Convict them of sin and discernment of the spirits of who's preaching and what they're preaching. It's God's grace that we're here. It's by God's grace that we're in a Bible-believing church that preaches the Word of God within its context to the best we can, even though we're sinful humans, but we give this book a high priority and we elevate it to the Most High because it's God's Word. And I'll, maybe I, st- I said some things that made you think a little bit. I don't know if you know this movement of deconstructing faith that's going on, especially with Christian artists that they're de- deconstructing their faith. And it's funny. Deconstructing your faith is actually pretty theologically sound. You know, go ahead and deconstruct your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Go ahead. Go in that journey. I commend you to do it. I did it four years ago. After all the years of my Christianity, I was like, why do I believe what I believe? And I literally dis- deconstructed every part and reconstructed it again. But you know what I did it with? The Word of God. You can deconstruct your faith, but you can't deconstruct your faith without rebuilding it again with the Word. What these people are doing is, because they want to fit in, they're artists, and they don't want to be, you know, rejected because they stand on the truth. They deconstruct their faith and reconstruct it again with humanism. 
and human reason. And we know that's not going to lead anywhere. And eventually they leave the faith. See, don't do that. If you want to know why you believe what you believe, I encourage you to do so. Please do so. Get into the Word of God. If anytime you hear something preached by me, by all the teachers here and there, go inside the Word. Be a Berean. Investigate. That's what you're called to do. But don't wait for the excuse of like, oh, just I'm going to use my human logic to do so. No, that, no, no, you're just going against the Word of God and good luck with that. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your Word. Thank you because you've given us instructions on how to live this Christian life. You have revealed yourself to us through your precious word. We know who you are because of your word. You're loving, you're perfect, you're holy, you're kind. Thank you for your word that we can use and read and meditate and scrutinize, Father, and, and go in and dig deep, Lord, to the riches that you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God. I pray that today you can convict us of praying with faith, a better faith, a faith that believes that you're able and capable of doing. Let us not come in before your throne, not having faith or lackadaisical, but believing that you are God, that you are powerful to do anything if you will, if it is your will. I pray that you can spark these youth fathers with a fervent prayer life, as they read your word, that they can love it more each day, that they can delight in reading it, that they can meditate on it, and that the Holy Spirit can sanctify them. Thank you for prayer. We pray for those family members that are might be in churches that have false doctrines and false teachers, that your grace can open their eyes to see the error that they're in and give us the grace and the love to talk to them as well. It is in your precious name that we pray.